Welcome back to the Alaska Music Podcast. I'm going to give you a heads up on this show. It involves drinking in a 50s and 60s sort of casual way, but just to let you know ahead of time. This week's episode is called Let Me Tell You Something, which means stories. Because it's the Alaska Music Show, it means Alaskana. And because it's called the Alaska Music Show, doesn't mean I'm going to be playing music. This week, it's stories. And this week, specifically, from Mr. Reuben Gaines. Reuben came to Alaska in 1946. He was a broadcaster and storyteller, and it all came together in a show he had on Sunday nights in Anchorage called Conversation Unlimited. There, he introduced Alaska to his prose and poetry, often about a character called Chilkoot Charlie. What? Chilkoot Charlie, you say? Yes, Chilkoot Charlie. Chilkoot Charlie could best be described as a sourdough Paul Bunyan who liked whiskey. So before yakking on too long about it, I'm going to play you some Reuben Gaines featuring Chilkoot Charlie. But before he gets into Chilkoot Charlie, the first story is called A Mandatory Art, which means a lot more to us right now in Alaska than you might think. Here he is, Reuben Gaines. Any time after the autumnal equinox comes and goes by here, shivering in shoe packs and blowing on its hands, the snow falls on the local streets and roads, tentatively at first, then in earnest. Once the snow is permanent, it quickly glaciates into a skin of ice as durable as a polished stegosaurus hide and resists all such human and natural enemies as tire chains and sunshine. The skin holds human balance and contempt, too. So Alaskans spend at least six months of every winter perfecting the art of falling down. That a traveler will sooner or later hit the ice is certain. The old hand here no longer wastes time naively trying to avoid it. He accepts his ultimate contact with the ice philosophically and improves the time by studying the art of falling with craft. An Alaskan can be recognized anywhere in the world. He walks with an exploratory shuffle, a snowshoe stance. The normal walk, where the heel strikes the ground before the rest of the foot, is suicide in the northern winter. The foot's whole surface has to be planted at once, so the walker's weight is evenly distributed. The slightest shift to cargo, and he is on his head, his clavicle, or his gluteus maximus, however the ice wants him. The highway out front here is rutted by frozen tire tracks, and each rut is a menace to the frailty of human bones. A shuffler on pure glare ice has a reasonable chance, but when the probing foot slides into or out of a rut, the weight is prone to shift, and he is himself prone. There's no gradual collapse ever. The act is quick and uncompromising. One second the shuffler is up, and the next he is down. If the contact is painful or embarrassing or both, he is tempted to bounce up immediately, and devote himself to blasphemy, a very brainless business. Emotion and ice don't mix. He'll go down again, and his day is a shambles. Instead, when he finds himself spread out on Alaska, he should stay there and plan the rest of the course. He's been a failure so far, but the average is one fall a trip, and the odds are with him. Collapsing with the least physical and moral damage is an art. A real craftsman can pick the part of his anatomy that will make the contact, he who falls on his head all the time uh, will soon be unable to carry on ordinary conversation. So he engineers, spreads the area of the contact. One day he lands on his rear, the next day on his elbows, the next on his hands, the next on his shoulder, 
and finally on his head as a last resort. This way, one part of him rehabilitates while the others work. A good contact engineer can live in Alaska for 50 years without permanent breakage or shock. Yesterday's performance by a groggery patron was a perfect example. From appearances, he had spent the whole day in the temple, and he hit the ice in a glow of false security. This was evident from his stance. His cargo was shifting even before he was out the door. While one foot was still inside, the other was sliding across the ruts, and he was down before the trip started. In the ten feet between him and safety, he was flapped on Alaska six times. But he was a veteran and an artist. He fell on a different part of himself each time and planned the rest of the course. It was a really fine exhibition. In spite of his personal fog, the craftsmanship sustained him in the hour of trial. Time's passage is a relative thing. The coming and going of a few seconds can be a minor league eternity, like the moment between realization that collapse is coming and the contact itself. The dying man sees his past life in montage, and this is the same as the ice faller. Craftsman or not, this could be the one. So we're thinking people at this end of town. That measureless second in midair can make a man plan a better life for as long as a half a day. These resolutions have improved us. There are fewer crimes of violence out here. A sinner on the ice knows that he never knows. Two falls on a single stretch can induce him to live better for as long as, well, call it a half hour. The ice concedes to no one or his dignity. The judge who minces across the glacier looking decorous will find himself flat on his robe. Nature is notably thick-skinned about human self-esteem, especially if that skin is ice. In half an hour, I will be trying that stretch out in front, but with some faith. My quota is one fall a day. I had it this morning. This tale is roughly titled Chilkoot Charlie and the Bear. How innocent that title sounds while sitting smugly there. Before we're halfway finished with our hero and his battles, we'll wail in anguish, one and all, like brats who've lost their rattles. The thing commences in a most deceptive, gentle vein. The old Chilkoot found a grizzly cub who shivered in the rain, took him to the cabin, where he fed him muskeg soup and bundled him in blankets so he wouldn't catch the croup. The mother bear had doubtless passed away among the sticks, assisted by some lout who shot a 30-point aught six. So Chilkoot nursed the waif with all the means he had at hand. There never was a more repulsive mother in the land. The spring and summer passed away. Autumn came in focus. The cub had grown to urchin size, and certain hocus-pocus would greet old Chilkoot when he ambled in from all the traps. At times he thought he'd like to make a pair of grizzly shaps. The waif would knock the cans from all the cupboards and cavort in other ways of mischief doing things he hadn't ordered. But urchins will be cubs, and Chilkoot Charlie didn't moan as long as Grizzly Junior left his liquor stock alone. If Junior had as much as pulled a cork from off a jug, the trapper would have had that very day a brand new rug. One day our hero went abroad to gaze upon his traps, and gather in the mink, uh, which make them thousand-dollar wraps. Before he left, he'd fixed a bed for Junior in the kitchen. He looked a little beat uh, for hibernation he was itching. So then, when Chilkoot snowshoed back a week from when he'd started, and looked inside, 
there came a roar from where his beard was parted. Young Junior's place beside the kitchen stove was bare. Instead, he hibernated happily in guess whose private bed. That there was quite enough. Old Chilkoot kicked him in the nether, but Junior didn't move. He only snored heck-bent for leather. And by now, his grizzly pal weighed, oh, 900 pounds, I'd wager, and lay there smugly like a colonel, well, at least a major. To say the old man's rage was great would only be to trifle. He cussed a mighty oath, then he lifted up his rifle. Then Junior opened up one eye, and calmly as you'd cough, reached out and grabbed old Chilkoot's gun and broke the barrel off. While Chilkoot looked in horror at the stock within his hand, young Junior, with a grisly smile, returned to slumberland. What Chilkoot must have thought while stewing in his rocking chair and gazing at his bed, which now contained that thieving bear, better not be stated unabridged, I rather think. The censor folks had pulled the plug and send us down the drink. There's one thing sure. While Junior slept and Charlie meditated, the air around him grew so thick it felt like marinated. At last the old man's hand stole out and grabbed a two-blade axe. He rose and slithered like a snake across the floorboard cracks. But when he raised the axe to start the stroke that meant the end, young Junior opened up an eye which plainly said, Why, friend? That's the way it went, so help me right on through the season till Chilkoot lost the bolts that held the hinges of his reason. Each solitary time that Chilkoot had her figured out, the bear would open up that eye and put the plan to rout. The rattled trapper gave it up. He settled in his chair and drank a jug of booze a day and gazed at that there bear. The spring rolled round. One day our hero wakened from a doze, and looking at the bed, he saw that uh, Junior had a rose. He shambled to the kitchen and was busy at the moment fomenting all the trouble it was possible to foment. Not only had he ate the grub while Chilkoot was in snooze, he'd pulled a couple corks and sat there soused on guess who's booze. The pain of that discovery unmanned our ancient buddy. Had Chilkoot weaker been, he would have wept the chugach muddy. He only sighed a gusty sigh, whose tone was resignation, and then he mixed some hotcakes to forget the situation. No sooner was he seated at the steaming hotcake stack when Chilkoot felt a nudging in the lumbar of his back. And there stood Junior, frowning. His expression said, Say, Rover, you got no decent sense of hospitality, move over. He guzzled Chilkoot's hotcakes while his host sat there bereft. From hence this happened every meal. He ate what Junior left. The old man suffered through the spring, attending on young Junior, the situation grimly growing loonier and loonier. Although it's not a common trait for normal grizzly bars, this guest grew fond of Chilkoot's hoarded stock of fine cigars. When Chilkoot finished feeding him, young Junior settled back and gestured with his paw, took his snort of white and black, then his host produced a light. This smug and shaggy Jonah would arrogantly fill the air with buck a piece Corona. This problem was a sticker any imbecile would own. The old man had no weapon, and that junior was full grown. He never let the trapper get beyond suspicious sight. He followed on the trap line, he watched him through the night. Young junior knew a good thing when he saw it, that's for sure. No other bear had ever had it quite so good before. He grew quite independent, too. 
This mattress-haired buffoon had learned to light his own cigars, just like a fat tycoon. So now we have made contact with the climax of the play. We lift the loving curtain on a certain night in May. The customary scene prevailed, with Junior fatly lounging, and poor bedraggled Chilkoot in the kitchen, sadly scrounging among the pots and pans and getting noticeably thinner, while cooking like a slave to get this lazy slug his dinner. He fried the customary sourdough hotcakes on the griddle, while Junior drooled and rubbed his big fat paws upon his middle. Without a decent grunt of thanks, and when Chilkoot set the table, he licked the platter cleaner than a derby winner stable. While being served tray faithfully, the way the poet says, young Junior should have heard the click of empty cartridges. They clanked in Chilkoot's pocket as he shambled through the room and played a rattling prelude to the grisly villain's doom. When Junior wrecked the rifle, he should never have forgot the bullets still were... Hold it, we'll decapitate the plot. The meal was done. The bear was full of hot cakes, had his booze, and now the fat cigar before his nightly one-eyed snooze. The bear bethought it strange. When Chilkoot offered him the stogie, he quickly turned and ran, just like a shark pursues a pogey. He scuttled through the door, barely paused to lift the latch. Young Junior shrugged in wonder, then he reached to get a match. When Chilkoot got, say, thirty yards beyond the cabin's rear, there came a great explosion and it knocked him on his ear. He looked to see the joint go up in shambles through the air, then down again, with nothing left but sundry bits of bear. The old man started in to laugh. He chortled and he cackled. He giggled and he chuckled as the ruins burned and crackled. Though the rain began to fall, things were rather grisly, he made a fricassee right there of late exploded grizzly. He wiped his chin, then took those empty bullets from his pocket and kissed each one. Looked as though his mind had sprung its sprocket. Without the powder in it, what's the value of a cartridge? It wouldn't shoot the feathers off a wooden-legged partridge. The powder's work was done. Old Chilkoot's laugh resounded far. Young Junior never should have lit that buck-a-piece cigar. One group alone demands the unconditional retraction of tales of Chilkoot Charlie's life, the Prohibition faction. This hero lives on booze alone. The dries wax fearful wrath to hear this drunken titan hailed. It drives him to a froth. But history is history. The balladeers will sing of Chilkoot Charlie till the final day of reckoning. This excerpt from a hero's life will bit by bit uncoil the story of a drought that fell upon Alaskan soil and parched the beasts and withered up the muskeg and the daisies and dried to dust the territory's myriad oases. One autumn, all the beasts of fur and birds of varied feather became aware that there was on the moors uncommon weather. The summer should have fled before the icy blasts of fall, yet witness and behold, there wasn't any wind at all. The sun continued on its course across the firmament, and autumn wasn't making any noticeable dent. Snow was absent, fields were in a raunchy kind of blossom, and Mother Nature, fat and fickle Jezebel, played possum. Dire fate had thrown into the normal gears a monkey wrench. The creeks grew dry. Forsooth, upon the thirsty river bench, the grayling and the salmon flopped a while, then flopped no more, and bones that once supported beasts bestrewed the valley floor. Above, in thirsty protest, flapped the draggled regal eagle, 
in croaking tones proclaiming this condition wasn't legal. The muskeg, known to experts as a form of arctic kraut, became by stages shredded wheat, its moisture all ran out. The alder, birch, and berry bushes consequently withered, and northern spruce and birch through which the wind had sighed and zithered began to breathe their last. In death, the woods gave up the juice. The innards of the bear thus shrank. His hairy hide grew loose. The human population suffered too from this condition, at first from thirst, then inescapably from malnutrition. A certain habit grew among the folks, frightful trend. One learned to bite a mouthful out of passing foe or friend. It seems that seven months before, old Chilkoot Charlie had fallen in a swound induced by spirit squoes from barley and lain in state or near thereto. Now perforce he woke. His rhythmic chain of snores was interrupted by the croak of buzzards on the nearby wing who took him for deceased and currently were closing in to consummate the feast. Old Chilkoot sniffed the atmosphere in state of growing wonder. What meteorological and biologic blunder had caused the lush terrain to fall afoul of dehydration? Had Hades come to earth to wreak this arid situation? His hand reached out unconsciously to close upon a crock of undiluted spirits, which he'd hid behind a rock against the day of awakening. It took a healthy drink for Chilkoot's mental gears to mesh enough for him to think. Behold, the crock lay strewn in bits. Old Chilkoot knew the worst. The varmints of the forest, sheer besides themselves with thirst, had guzzled every liquid that would gurgle, drip, or ooze, including bleak and dreadful fact old Chilkoot Charlie's booze. He hastened to his cache, and there the same impasse prevailed. The crocks and kegs were smashed to bits. His reason nearly failed to realize sobriety and he were now synonymous. Unwittingly, he'd founded Alcoholicers Anonymous. For how could he distill more spirits? Creeks were dry as bone. The barley fields were withered as the visage of a crone. Oh, horror past belief. To go teetotaling through life? The very thought incised him like a scalpel, a surgeon's knife. He'd never had to use his brain. The thing was still brand new. But now he quickly came aware of what he had to do. The eye of each beseeching beast was on him as he strode with firm resolve far back behind the Chugach where abode the towering glaciers, like of which had ne'er been seen by man. And there the greatest moving of the earth in history began. The mountains groaned as Chilkoot laid his hands upon the glaciers and ripped them from the earth. This action left immense embrasures which people know as valleys now. He tossed them over his shoulder, the way a miner throws away an unproductive boulder. A couple dozen glaciers made a fair impressive stack. Then Chilkoot waved his audience of thirsty creatures back and built a mighty fire. He'd stripped the northern forest floor of all its trees for kindling. Foliage don't grow there no more. The point of Chilkoot Charlie's brilliant strategy then came. He picked a glacier off the pile and fed it to the flame. The glacier straightway melted, yielding water wet and clear, and all of dry creation croaked a dusty-throated cheer. That very thirst, however, quite undid what Chilkoot started for scarcely was the water from the burning glaciers parted, and animal and man alike commenced to lap it up. The job complete, there wasn't water left to fill a cup. Though quick the healing liquid flowed, the critters drank it quicker. There wasn't nothing left to brew himself a batch of liquor. What Chilkoot Charlie did that day in Thunderacious wrath, we now reveal. The forest creatures skittered from his path. As north he went, where lived the sheep's head mammoth, mighty beast which went 250 elbows off the ground at least.
They heard his step and turned and ran in panic unison, except one sleeping bull, a hulk some 1,500 ton, whom Chilkoot stumbled onto. Informally, we guess, his tusk ran some 200 yards in length, or even less. Without a moment's hesitation, with a will kinetic, he pulled that mammoth's tusk sans benefit of anesthetic and left the now one tusker bull still slumbering, calm and deep, quite undisturbed by what befell. When mammoths sleep, they sleep. Old Chilkoot's head now throbbed as though it would scarcely hold together. His tongue hung like a necktie made from reject patent leather, and the wrinkles in his stomach crying loudly for a snort. So, maddened by the thirst, he set his compass hard a port and staggered toward the Bering Sea for all that he was worth, and shoved the mammoth tusk before him, plowing up the earth. The mountain ranges fell, the cliffs collapsed in great convulsion. The furrow flashed across the land like made by jet propulsion. The course once set, the plowman didn't halt or hesitate. Perspiration rolled from Chilkoot Charlie's warty pate as onward toward the western sea, his plow tore up the turf. Behold, before him finally, there rolled the Bering Surf. The scientists and such once claimed the Yukon River Valley was eons in the making. Lies. Old Chilkoot plowed the alley that led the roaring ocean waters into the interior. No feat in all creation more fantastical nor eerier. The Yukon waters fed the soil, which turned the foliage green, and once again the Northland looked like it had always been. What once was arid desert was restored to fruitful grove, and animal and human likewise fattened, yea, and throve. Old Chilkoot, unaware of this, drew water with dispatch, distilled it, and in gratitude he flung it down the hatch. What makes disciples of the Prohibition faction wince is simply that old Chilkoot Charlie ain't been sober since. Just relax and pour a grog, while this romantic tale unwinds itself like gory yarn. And put the kids in bed and send the ladies to the barn. The setting for the action is the lush and waving grass that flourished in the meadows near the Anaktuvik Pass. Instead of then consisting of the present alder brush, this region was renowned to be incomparably lush. The garden truck that sprang from yonder ground was fearful size. Potatoes, for example, when they watered at the eyes, would start a rash of creeks. One time they wept so long, they say, their overflow created what is now called Bristol Bay. The carrots of the region were so prodigally vast that in a pinch they'd serve a whaler as a mizzenmast. And onions, when the wind blew through, a clue will gladly give you, one smelled the halitosis down as far as South Bolivia. Of course, the animals whose habitat was centered there were big in ratio. Rabbits grew to be the size of bear. The Anaktuvik region in the days of olden yore was populated also by a giant tundra boar, a native hog whose stature it is hard to comprehend. From snout to tail, he stretched as far as, well, from end to end. The tusks could shear a California redwood at the base, the fearsomest of creatures and a mighty fearsome face. This hulking monster quadruped, this walking butcher cleaver, was something that a man dreams up while in a raging fever. The herd of inbred tundra boars, the tribe were all blood brothers, were numbered in the thousands. One was bigger than the others. He had a playful habit. When he ate his way through town, no citizens were ever left to hand the story down. The monster's appetite for humans was his worst defection. It started getting lonesome in the populated section. He loved to eat a pile of carrots higher than a steeple and then commence on meat, consisting totally of people. 
The Boer no doubt considered this in terms of good clean fun, but human folk commenced to think that something should be done. A hero should arise, and like St. George once slew the dragon, should amble forth and fix this pestilential critter's wagon. Oh, there were mighty men those days. The call for volunteers saw many manly noses being lifted from their beers. Each titan sought the honor, since it's evident to see that he who slew the tundra boar would live in history. In long gone days, the mode of life was elementary. They didn't choose by vote or method parliamentary. They wrestled for it. And of course, one needs no crystal ball to know that Chilkoot Charlie was the fearsomest of all. He set him down in order. But a worldwide earthquake fault resulted ere the tournament had staggered to a halt. When Chilkoot's brain had cleared a bit, he wondered with a groan if all those wrestling heroes hadn't let themselves be thrown. As anyone who had his marbles knew, that tundrous wine could whittle down a man and slices tissue paper fine. Within his bosom, Chilkoot felt a mild resentment kindle, as he perceived himself to be the victim of a swindle. But ancient northern law demands one take such matters big. A man could be a lying thief, but he who doth renege is lower than an ice worm in the depths of a crevasse. Our hero swallowed hard and strode toward Anaktuvik Pass. Before he came within a hundred miles, he heard such sounds as can't be uttered by a pack of Baskervillian hounds. Such squealings, grunts, and snortings human ear had never heard, and Chilkoot felt the sudden instinct of a homing bird. His visage never showed a sign that he was sore afraid, although the caps of Chilkoot's knees had turned to marmalade. The hog was in the neighborhood, the titan's ears informed him. He took a slug of liquor and it scarcely even warmed him. The vigil was a short one. A racket came to pass, as though the elephants of earth had run amuck en masse. The tundra hog came charging through the brush as though possessed. A beast that would have weighed ten tons, we figure, skinned and dressed. But hoof and hide were still intact. Its tusks were like immense, and Chilkoot added up his chances, maybe worth four cents. It was obvious the hog had smelled a whiff of human skin. As Chilkoot wondered how to notify his next kin, the giant swine espied him with a roar of porcine rancor, and Chilkoot wasted not a moment's time in weighing anchor. Although he had an inkling that it wasn't any use, he scrambled up the tallest tree the forest could produce. The hog then calmly honed his tusk upon a piece of quartz, and goosebumps rose on Chilkoot Charlie's hide the size of warts. The monster pig then swung this awesome weapon like an axe, took a couple tentative preliminary whacks. Then, though the tree was ironwood, a substance fairly hard, it gave a mighty swing and sheared the tree like it was lard. Old Chilkoot hurtled through the air, all same like gunny sack, and lit, as fate would have it, on the tundra porker's back. There then commenced a piggyback proceedings, be assured, that man or beast or combination never has endured. The picnic pitched and bucked like mad with Chilkoot hanging on, and knowing, once unseated, he was definitely gone. But Chilkoot was a man to whom existence was a pleasure, he loved it with a passion neither man nor swine can measure. He'd ridden whales and mammoths on occasions in the past, but this ride had to be his best or it would be the last. So Chilkoot stayed on board through prayer and stern determination. The hog, meanwhile, beginning to perceive a mild vexation. 
Far back within his Poland-China brain, the porker vowed that when he ate this man, he'd eat him slowly, belching loud. His leaps kept getting higher, while his jockey clung like sin, until they rose so far they got to where the air was thin. They left the Anaktuvik for the reaches of Point Barrow, where hordes of natives stood aghast and frightened to the marrow to view this raucous ruckus. They convened the legislature and passed a bill declaring the event a freak of nature. Though Chilkoot was a goner by bipartisan consensus, he stuck like grimmest glue. An old hog kicked down the fences, knocked the tops of mountains off, while trying to dislodge this thing that fastened topside like the roof on a garage. The seasons came and went. The winter brought its ice and snow, and on the hog and rider, grim effects began to show. They hadn't had a thing to eat since when the ride commenced, the jumps were getting weaker, and the mortal rivals sensed that if they weren't parted soon, starvation was in order. The natives in the hamlets on the nearby Yukon border had even lost their interest in the once historic joust, whose tempo now was slower than the flower song from Faust. The hog decided then and there that something must be done. The creature was so withered that he scarcely weighed a ton. He suddenly stopped bucking and with loud and gusty groan, he sank and lay relaxed as though his earthly work were done. Old Chilkoot wasted not a second's time. On wobbly legs, he headed for the woods as though pursued by thieves and yeggs. This episode presents no wondrous learning for the masses, except the northern map shows many valleys and crevasses and riverbeds and potholes that were never dug before old Chilkoot staged the rodeo atop the tundra bore. One time, just one, he looked around, and there, bent for election, the tundra hog was streaking in the opposite direction. Whenever you hear a sudden whistling wind, you are safe to bet it's Chilkoot, Charlie, and the hog. The two are running yet. The Chugach Mountains top them all in towering silhouette, and even those who know the land ain't sure how high they get. They stretch from St. Elias to the fringe of the interior, make the other mountain heights look shamefully inferior. Some undiscovered Chugach peaks make High Tibet look flat and liken Mount McKinley to a pimple on a gnat. The air up there where Chilkoot scraped the belly of the moon was thinner than a highball in an anchorage saloon. To such a region you can bet your gold fiddle lower denture no soul but Chilkoot Charlie ever dared to venture. He conquered each vicissitude that history can mention by calling on his legendary powers of invention. For instance, as the farmers keep a herd of cattle stock, this opportunist kept corralled a vast mosquito flock. One finds mosquitoes everywhere, some are mighty sizable, but Chilkoot raised a species that were nigh unrecognizable, a corkscrew beak creation with an outboard motored rear, the kind you see when someone flips a mickey in your beer. According to the anglers who go fishing in the region, these insects still abound, and faith their multitudes are legion. The modern type mosquito, though, just a little fella, although his wing spread still can span an average umbrella. In Chilkoot's time is when mosquitoes really had their growth, the size of either blimps or helicopters, and maybe both. Historians reveal, thereby earn our gratitude, that once mosquitoes had a very friendly attitude. Just like the horse assists the farmer with his plow and wagons, old Chilkoot taught his flock of happy disposition dragons to screw their beaks into the ground to dig the holes for planting, 
likewise harvest spuds and turnips. It was most enchanting to watch the vast mosquito herd as patiently they dug while Chilkoot sat in comfort nipping blithely at his jug. Old Chilkoot taught them many things. He broke them to the saddle, whereas before he had to go snowshoe or by paddle, he chose a fast mosquito, put a saddle on its hind, and off would go his craft like it had just been turpentine. As they flew, the outboard on its tail would purr contented, while people down below looked up and swore they were demented. It raised a fair commotion when they landed in a town. The drunks would stare in unbelief. They'd lay their money down and wager they were seeing things. The history books allege that every lush who saw the sight went out and took the pledge. It was after such a pleasure cruise while coming into land, old Chilkoot saw a thing below he couldn't understand. The middle of his garden was a gooey, slimy mess. And what had banged the thing about he couldn't even guess. He circled in astonishment, made him uh, nothing wiser to notice in the middle of the muck there sprang a geyser. Then there came the flash that made his brain pan fairly boil. While digging for potatoes, them mosquitoes, they'd found oil. As Chilkoot taxied in, he bellered out a loud halloo that split the eardrums of walrus out near Kotzebue. And since for profit Chilkoot had a natural proclivity, the action round about the place was one of sheer activity. He transferred operations from the carrots and the peas and sharpened them mosquitoes' beaks for felling cedar trees. So ere the week was out, the derricks rose. One heard the hum of laboring mosquitoes drilling for petroleum. While Chilkoot rubbed his hands with glee and chortle like a miser, them insects kept on turning up with geyser after geyser. And as the days went on, the pile of barrels grew and grew. The whole dang mountain seemed to float in money-making goo. While Chilkoot sat in comfort, pouring whiskey in his craw, the insects did the work. He didn't have to lift a paw. When things were going nicely, all the barrels full of oil, an incident occurred that made him matter in the boil. Instead of sounds of derricks plunging, there was deepest quiet. The situation was so strange, he staggered out to eye it. And lying round about, amid the tundra and the brush, that mob of insects wallowed in a state of fearsome lush. Though Chilkoot probed the mystery with all of his cunning vigor, where they had got the alcohol was mighty hard to figure. But there they lay, passed out and limp. One of them would hiccup and search about with reddened eye to find himself a pickup. Old Chilkoot watched the drunk mosquitoes. It was a wondrous puzzle to see a thirsty insect thrust his liquor-seeking muzzle as deep as possible into the ground, and then he'd weave back to his sleeping place as drunk as sin again. The mystery solved itself. All you who were informed have read that once the Chugach was a region tropic warmed. Bananas grew and oranges, other types of fruit abounded in its fern-like trees and coconuts to boot. Well came the glacial age, and when the ice came on apace, why all the fruits were buried underneath this selfsame place. Wouldn't take no brains, in fact a man could be demented, and still he'd realize them tons of fruit were all fermented. So when the insects dug for oil, they'd run across this cache of subterranean hundred-proof ten-million-year-old mash. And once they'd had a snort of this and got their senses numb, no wonder they lost their taste for rank petroleum. No matter how old Chilkoot urged and pleaded, swore and threatened, 
They'd staggered to the glory hole to get their whistles wettened. The thing became a nightmare. Drunk mosquitoes reeling round, singing barroom ballads and collapsing on the ground, making wobbly flights, off colliding in midair. This here was pure enough to make a critter tear his hair. They took to rolling barrels off the mountaintops and shout with happy insect glee to see the oil go pouring out. As Chilkoot's profits went to pot, his erstwhile slaves got potched, and as disaster flourished, he just sat and glumly watched. But there's an end to everything. All liquor stocks go dry, and that's what came of them fermented juices by and by. One morning, as they gathered at the glory hole to drink, and none of them were what you'd call exactly in the pink, they dipped their beaks into the ground and found, unhappy day, that all this wonderful ferment had melted plumb away. To take a drunk from off his booze, sans prelude or fair warning, is tough, to say the very least, especially in the morning. The old Chilkoot rubbed it in, of course. He grinned in satisfaction, assuming them mosquitoes would return to drilling action. But they had gathered in a knot. Chilkoot's grim surprise, they sat and stared at him with baleful, unforgiving eyes. The act went on for days. Each time the trapper took a nip, the dry mosquitoes drooled in hate and gave the man the pip. One night, as Chilkoot lay in bed, a pounding of his ear, the insects rose en masse, made their foul intentions clear. They crept upon his liquor stock the way a sneak thief burgles, and soon the air was filled with popping corks and thirsty gurgles. When Chilkoot rose next morn, he blew his alcoholic top, for in the night they drained the jugs of every living drop. He'd lived through many tragic days, but this, without dissension, was certainly the worst. It was one he never cared to mention. You'd think the man had had it all, but there was worse to come. Who knows what nasty thoughts and heads of drunken insects hum. The revelry was over, and the mob was spitting cotton, when one of them divulged a thought, the best he'd ever gotten. An insect or a man alike, when he's a thirst for booze, will go where whiskey is. And it was natural they'd choose to light on Chilkoot Charlie. Required no mental pains to realize pure alcohol was flowing into his veins. And old Chilkoot read their minds. As the insects made a rush, he turned in livid panic and he scuttled through the brush. The rest of this is tragical, but finish it we must. Who e'er escapes mosquitoes when they're filled with bloody lust? They caught him halfway up a tree and sunk their drilling gear into his boozy hide and the man was bloodless for a year. They passed their inclinations to their offspring. It's no gag. Mosquitoes still drill human beings looking for a jag. But when they dined on Chilkoot, rest assured upon the spot, it was the very drunkest them mosquitoes ever got. The quest for learning has led man along paths of curiosity and byways of growing knowledge out of the trees into the caves, then out of the caves and into apartment houses. Knowledge depends to a great degree upon language. And as we have often pointed out on this series of lectures, language depends to a certain extent upon words. Well, this is another in a series of lectures whose popularity has grown with the enthusiasm of the students for adding to their store of vocabulary. Our procedure is to go through the dictionary and clutch to our collective bosom those words which have thus far escaped our knowledge. As we have often pointed out, 
when there are a half million words available to us in the English language, and if our vocabulary consists of only 250, we can almost be accused of not expressing ourselves fully. Now, on page 278 alone, we are again faced with the melancholy fact that we do not employ enough language. In what conversation lately have we heard or contributed such words as epiphyte, episcopy, or epithelium? Now, the use of any of these terms, even thrown out of the side of the mouth or tossed over the shoulder, would give the conversation an automatic social tone. A bum hanging on the outskirts of the talk would move away, saving everyone the necessity of refusing him a handout. To what group of English users have we given the invaluable word epizootic lately? As we all know, and are frankly apt to forget, unless we use the term in at least every other conversation, epizootic means simply something which is temporarily prevalent among animals. The examples of its use are everywhere about us. We observe a pack of male dogs, for instance, proceeding down the street, all wearing intent expressions, a typical Alaskan sight. We realize that this is an epizootic situation when we notice a certain female proceeding ahead of them at a distance. Now, unfortunately, here somehow at this point we have lost a page of our lecture. No matter. We have absorbed the example. We need to hardly remark that the word eponymous is not used enough in the ordinary exchange of talk. It is just such a lack of usage that can cause a vital word to wither and be retired before its time. Beginners in rompers are aware that eponymous means giving one's name to something, such as the expressions we use dozens of times a day, Coxey's Army, Mansfield's Measurements, Myers's Rum. It would be an added pleasure to realize as Alaskan residents that we are being eponymous when we use the nickname that fills us all with immense pride and emotional love of our homeland, Seward's Folly. Now, whereas this word enriches everyday terms, we find on the same page, that is, page 278 students, an opposite form, an expression which tones down a meaning. It consists, in fact, of only initials, spoken under the breath and used only by millionaires. We speak of EPT, excess profits tax. Those of us here may not be called upon to make use of the term, but knowledge of it will give full understanding when we read how riches are of no real value and how wealth never brings happiness, only comfort, etc. We have often attempted to make it clear the students who are awake will please raise their hands. Nevertheless, we have often attempted to make it clear that the meaning of a term can add to one's understanding of a person. Now, here among the E's, we find an excellent illustration in the word eremitical. Its meaning we know, a person's preference for solitude. Now, suppose on a fishing trip or a butterfly hunting expedition, the nature lover steps onto a hermit's property and is shot out from under himself by a double-barrel load of gunfire or is trampled and gnawed by the owner's mixture of Doberman Pinscher and Malamute and is called a trespasser in various short versions of the term. Since the nature lover knows the hermit is eremitical, he will accept these small inconveniences with tolerance. He may even find humor in them as he runs. Indeed, often the gayer side of our intellectual lives suffers by the lack of language. At times like the present, this is a grim life as a whole, and the humor in it should be treasured. For the purpose of illustration, we offer the term esculent. To present a picture of our meaning, 
Let us imagine a grocery store where we are shopping for a five-year supply of food on the morning after a friendly all-night poker contest. In the butcher department, laughing inwardly, but showing no evidence of it on the surface, we plunge a hand into the trough that holds the hamburger. Holding the meat aloft, we sternly ask the butcher, is this meat esculent? It's a foregone conclusion that he will turn pale and violently deny it. But we have trapped him. We will merrily inform him that the word means edible. The humor in the situation should be obvious here. He denied that his meat was edible. A show of hands, please. Students? Yes. If one is still able to control himself or the butcher, he may add slyly that the butcher can wrap it up anyway, since he has eupepsia, namely good digestion. Now, many valuable words begin with E-U. Uh, one of the more familiar terms prefixed by those letters was inspired by a great scientist as he was listening to his son practicing his elementary violin lessons. Euthanasia, or mercy killing. There is also euthenics, an expression employed by poor bank tellers who abscond with a great deal of the establishment's money. Its definition is the act of improving living conditions. The letters E-V also serve to introduce remarkable words, some of them rich in meaning and full of suggestion. For instance, we are acquainted with a certain Evelyn, uh, but to continue, on page 284, we see Evan S., whose definition is disappear, fade away, vanish. The word is of financial derivation whose origin is traced to Las Vegas, Nevada. Now, how many of the terms of the EV class originated makes a fascinating study. Eversion, for example, refers to a sleeping husband's trousers in the dead of night, specifically the trousers pocket that holds the money. The definition is turning inside out. Now, certain phrases in our language can inspire the imagination to almost fever pitch. The prefix X means out of, and its combination with other words can cause the user to have so much fun that he is often asked by passers-by whether he is all right. Now, on page 286, we see X elevator, meaning free of charges until the time of removal out of the elevator. It's not beyond the realm of probability to imagine a jewel thief having seized a fortune in diamonds and taken refuge in the elevator. He can, of course, have declared his intention of buying these gems, but he makes the statement with his tongue in his cheek, since the dictionary plainly says he is free of charges until the time of removal from the elevator. He has naturally used foresight and stocked the elevator with provisions and other comforts that will last him a considerable time. And he sits confidently immune from the police who mill about his sanctuary, fuming with impotent rage. Thus one's imagination is given full and joyful reign under the stimulus of a single phrase. Now this concludes our lecture, perhaps a moment or two earlier than usual, to leave time for an announcement. A growing number of students are bringing a rather uninspired attitude to class of late, and this inattention shows itself in a most unfortunate form, namely sleep. The series can only continue if students, those who are awake, will please show their hands. Students. In ages long defunct, when humans still resembled apes, the wastes of stunted tundra and the ice-begirdled capes that line the northern shores, devoid of living, growing things, was once a fruitful area, a boil with gurgling springs surrounded by banana trees, cassava vines, and palms. 
Now it lies in bleakness, like a bum demanding alms. We palpitate to know how this reversal came to be, this geographic switch from opulence to poverty. The truth is now revealed. Back then, the wintertime thermometer, so long ago the centuries are totaled by comptometer, read 80 all the time, never varied one degree, so people had to walk around in skins, their own, you see. And much thicker then were furs in which the animals were wrapped. Now the bears are nearly bare, and parts of them get chapped. The rivers never froze, as do the Kenai and the China, and Kotzebue for years back then was known as Pasadena. The Yukon was the region where the harvesting of hides was lucrative no end. The fur upon the beasts' outsides was thicker than Godiva's hair, which falling to her knees bedecked her while she rode without so much as her chemise. The big society event, the biggest ever knew, was when the folk foregathered for the trappers' rendezvous and swapped their skins. We mean, of course, their fox and beaver pelts, though now and then one wished he wore the skin of someone else while waking up hungover, but that's sociology. We now reveal a name whose mention needs apology. Old Chilkoot Charlie, eminent behemoth prehistoric, to speak of whom affects one like a shot of paragoric. The rendezvous occurred each year, according to the manual, in two installments, each six months. This celebration annual did not commence to really roll till Chilkoot hove in sight and turned confusion into chaos, uh, which in turn took flight in favor of catastrophe. When Chilkoot threw a bender, things shook as with the egg or like a Stanley Steamer's fender. The population, as it's very often wont to do, where people occupy themselves with naught but leisure, grew. The rendezvous thus suffered from an overpopulation. The more the merrier, of course, but when they had to ration their booze supply because there weren't enough to go around, it was obvious that means of plenitude must needs be found. No rendezvous that's rationed to a couple measly quarts is worth it. One might just as well stay home and count his warts. A student of the North is well acquainted with the Yukon. Its bed is often wide enough to lay ex-King Farouk on. According to the findings of a special research panel, a billion liquid gallons wander daily through its channel. And if this mighty waterway were dammed at either end, a lake should be created past imagination. Friend, envision, if you will, what happens then if one should stash its bottom full of hops and barley. Sacre, what a mash. The waters rising to the top of this here reservoir should shortly be 200 proof or so, which then was par. Thus Chilkoot thought, as said before, the soil was rich and lush. Where now one finds no more than polecat weed or alder brush, the hops and barley, growing wild and native, would bedapple the hillside springing high as, say, a tall man's Adam's apple. When Chilkoot's notion was revealed, folk fell upon the crop and tore it from the ground till not a single living hop remained to lend its fragrance to the tropic northern air, nor likewise could one find a stalk of barley anywhere. The thought of booze unlimited lent muscles to their zeal. Though most were lazier than an unwired electric eel, a kind of lassitude is common in the warmer climes, this project prompted one and all to rocket off their dimes and operate with vigor. So the river ends were dammed, and into Yukon Lake were flying the crops. When fully crammed, the people hit the water too. Their feet commenced to flail, transforming hops to mash and mash progressively to ale. That year, a note of gaiety enlivened the convention. Considering the appetites of man, one scarce needs mention, expectancy was in the air. 
That lake of aging liquor commenced to quicken spirits which had ne'er before been quicker. They waited for the first gassed fish. Who cares for mammon when everything depends on that initial plastered salmon? The public palate underwent an agonizing thirst before it came about, and then from out the water burst a school of coho in a state of obvious hysterics and singing audible to all suggestive barroom lyrics. No further evidence was needed. People filled their crocks and drank. The lake contained a kick that would have felled an ox. The bender that ensued does not concern us. Simply say that what transpired would turn the prohibition faction gray. Old Chilkoot had accomplished it again, the raunchy sot. Ere half an hour was gone, the rendezvous had gone to pot. We must pursue those drunken fish, entirely innocent of spirit liquor heretofore. They scrambled, ocean-bent, and flopping and hallooing in a way to turn your liver, they cast themselves against the dike that dammed the Yukon River. The thing, of course, gave way. The potent waters billowed forth, resulting in a deluge that engulfed the cringing north. Whatever stood within their course, beast, vegetable, and human, was withered. What a batch that was. Perforce we must illumine the further progress of the fish. Encountering the ocean, they straightway sobered. Yet their feeble minds sustained the notion that something strange had happened on the hazy day before. When brains were handed out, the fish were stashed behind the door. From thence was handed down to each succeeding generation the same exhilarating and mysterious sensation that somewhere in the inland streams lay heavenly well-being. And clearly that's why they return. The fish are bent on seeing what prompts this recollection of a former paradise. They make the trip each year as soon as spring removes the ice. The fish historians and other charlatans will state they go for lesser purposes, to put it bluntly, mate. A student who accepts such gibberish is apt to lose the fact that salmon go upstream subconsciously for booze. So went the catastrophic day that saw the foliage die there, around old Chilkoot and his drunken friends. Oh, let him lie there. Here's Mrs. Maloney, and hark to her fate. You think you've known troubles, vicissitudes? Wait. We thumb through the book. On page 90, one sees she gave a kind home to a dozen lost fleas escaped from a circus. The owner, a miser, had thought that the fleas would be nothing the wiser if he were to mix their flea food with wood shavings. They rebelled and departed. He lost all his savings. So Mrs. Maloney, a daft soul at best, prepared them a home in her late husband's vest. This marital partner, long dead, hen-pecked soul, had left her a fish in a fifty-cent bowl. The goldfish awaited his time. At his ease, he watched the naive, unsuspecting young fleas as they hopped ever closer. The thing happened soon. He leaped from the surface one Saturday noon and grabbed them. Commences a chain devastating. She brought home a cat, and this wretch, without waiting, invaded the bowl on a purposeful beeline, and quickly the fish was surrounded by feline. The following morning a dog came to live, and ten seconds later the cat was a sieve. But what did the widow do? Languish and grouse? She said, no, bedad wished I'll be painting me house. In actual truth, Mrs. M's domicile had not been refurbished for divil a while, and looked, as it rose from the raggedy willows, like something to house dispossessed armadillos. She purchased a brush, calcimine, and a ladder. In school, she had never been much of an adder, and lacking such knowledge, was quite unaware that her vast bulk of weight wasn't long for up there. 
She climbed with her pail, reaching topside almost, and promptly the ladder side gave up the ghost and tumbled. The concrete crew broke her descent, but here's how results of that evil day went. The sidewalk was wrecked where she fell, and the street was bent past repair for at least 50 feet. And what was there left for the city to do with miscreant Mrs. Maloney but Sue? This wasn't the total of what came about. On impact, her loose-fitting dentures came out and fastened themselves on the innocent ear of a man passing by on the way to get beer. He earlessly hauled her to court, where the jury, whose foreman just happened to own half the brewery, which lost the man's sale, find her all she had left when the city got through with her. Broken bereft, she went to her garden to spend a few hours among the tall weeds that had strangled her flowers. Had Mrs. Maloney observed, she'd have known she was not occupying the garden alone. A bumblebee colony thrived in the clover, quite close to where Mrs. M stood bending over, and one of them, young and inquisitive, wondered with interest about this huge bulk that had blundered upon their domain. He took off single-handed, approached the broad area, hovered, and landed. The steel mill that flourished a block or two down supported nigh all of the folk in the town. This day, very strangely, the stop whistle blew while the clock on the wall only read five past two. Folks picked up their lunch pails and poured out the gate while the foreman protested it wasn't that late. Bejabers, the whistle that caused them to quit was not what they thought. When the bee chose to sit on Mrs. Maloney's expanse, her loud yell resembled the factory whistle. Oh, well, 10,500-odd man-hours were frittered ere all of the steel workers, fiercely embittered, returned to the shift that they'd figured completed. Next morning, of course, the poor widow was greeted with yet more subpoenas. This time more aware, she departed the town for the clean desert air. She left all the signs where people foregather and sped through the Joshua trees in a lather and hurdled the yucca until, frankly beat, she ran out of gas in a clump of mesquite. Her tongue hanging out, she observed close at hand a silo of sorts rising out of the sand. The thing had a nose which was pointed on top. She cast a last look for a possible cop and crawled to the cylinder, let herself in, and relaxed in her safe sanctuary of tin. And no one bedad interrupted her flight. They set off the rocket, you see, that same night. So there you have it, the prose and poetry of Reuben Gaines. And if you're wondering why there's a local bar called Chilkoot Charlie's, otherwise known as Coots, it's because Reuben Gaines was very good friends with the bar's original owner, Mike Gordon. There you have it, the entire story you don't need to know anymore. The Alaska Music Podcast and Show is produced by me, Kurt Riemann, in downtown Anchorage, Alaska, where three weeks later they're finally plowing the snow. You can find us on the web at nightworksmedia.com. There we have playlists. Sometimes. In the new year, be safe, be kind, and help a little old lady cross the street because look at the size of that snow berm. Tell someone you love you love them and stay warm with an Alaskan story in your heart.